0: Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 this morning.
1: We're continuing our series on why we believe what we believe about the church. There is a phrase in Matthew 16
0: that needs to be addressed as far as this... uh, Particular series, goes. So
1: I'm just curious. Sorry, I was looking. Oh, those things? Yes. Okay. And you saw them. And went I just knew where they were at. Uh, okay. <laughs> the mother's intuition. Anyway, so Matthew 16, um, we are going to start reading in verse 1. We're going to work our way to this particular phrase. Um, I'll let you know when we get there, because in order to really understand it, you've heard it before, but in order to really understand it, you need context, and that's what we're going to give you. So, in verse 1, it says, the Pharisees also with the Sadducees came, and tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lower. O ye hypocrites! Ye can discern the face of the sky, but ye cannot discern the sign of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them, and departed So we see this morning the Pharisees confront Jesus. The Pharisees, with the Sadducees, came, the Bible said, tempting him. Now, that phrase is extremely important to the context we're trying to build. Upon first glance, it may appear as though these groups have been desired to believe in Jesus, but want to be sure that he was indeed the Messiah, also called the Christ in the New Testament. But that word tempting tells us that their true purpose was to disprove Jesus and find something that they might use against him. You've got to be careful about people who come to you seemingly helping. Because those people can be very uh, deceptive. Now, you shouldn't be a distrusting person, but you want to use wisdom and discernment, right? That's why we, uh, we're, we're cautious with new people, right? You don't give them the keys to the kingdom on the first day. If you're a, a boss, you know, at a job, and you go got to hire somebody, somebody new on the workplace, uh, you're not going to give them all the responsibilities you'll ever give them on the first day, are you? You're going to start them off with, uh, with with something easy, something simple, that if they mess that up, there's not really any consequences. Right? And if they mess it up, then you work with them until they can figure that out. And then once they master that, you give them a little more. Right? There's some discernment. There's some caution. And when people come to you wanting to give you things and help you out and build you out, that's a wonderful thing But have some wisdom, have some discernment, have some caution. That's what Jesus had in these verses. Because that's what they wanted it to look like. But Jesus knew what it really was. It had been said by many historians and biblical scholars that the Pharisees were the conservative religious party. And that's kind of important to understand because it really parallels something going on in our world today. And the Sadducees were the liberal religious party. But it says in our, our scripture here that they both came together to meet with Jesus. Could you imagine anything in our country so harmful to American politics that it would unite the Democratic and Republican parties in order to eliminate a bipartisan threat? Because let me tell you, there are a couple of times in history where we get our act together and we find out what real trouble looks like. Because as Democrats, they like to point to the Republicans and they, they like to say, these guys are causing us a lot of trouble. We need to eliminate Republicans. And then the opposite is true as well Republicans will look at Democrats and say, these guys are causing our country a lot of trouble. We need to eliminate them altogether. Neither one of those facts is true. We find that out when real trouble hits. Right? When Russia begins to invade Ukraine, everybody gets behind Ukraine. Because that's real trouble. That's not this brother slapping brother nonsense we got going on in Congress. Real trouble. In World War II, when the Nazis began to invade the other countries, began to rise up in their own nation, Hitler began to do these terrible atrocities. That was real trouble. Thank you, by the way. That was real trouble. And we united as a nation, rallied behind one another <laughs> to defeat real evil.
0: That's real trouble. And it united us
1: as a nation. And it's a beautiful thing. Well, we kind of have the reverse of that here in Matthew 16, because we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees that didn't get along as much as uh, Republicans and Democrats don't get along in our world today, and yet they unite for the purpose of trying to discredit Jesus. That's really an incredible thing, to see that they so hated Jesus, they so despised what they did to Jesus that they are... Rallying together here in chapter 16 to eliminate them all altogether as a political contender. You know, there are things about Jesus that are unpopular with both sides of the aisle. People like to take the bits and pieces of Jesus they like and then attribute those things and talk about those things and not the other part of it. The uh, generosity that we read about in the Bible and practice in our lives is often unpopular
0: many times with conservative politicians. And the commandments, which we hold ourselves accountable uh, to, are often unpopular with Democrats. So the result is that we're often
1: despised by various kinds of people. When we would like to be more generous financially, there's a crowd of people that doesn't like that. And the crowd of people that do like that, they don't like it when we hold ourselves accountable to the laws of the Lord. We say something is a sin, and that offends them, and they don't want to hear that. Even if we say it with compassion and kindness, if we make sure to emphasize that Jesus loves us, He died on the cross, that we're all sinners, if we say something they don't like, they still become offended, they don't want to listen to us. That's the thing that we call nowadays cancel culture. Cancel culture is nothing new. We've been eliminating people we don't like to hear for
0: years, but now we have a platform to do it on.
1: But that is the way the world works. But don't get discouraged when that happens. Because remember that before they did it to you, they did it to Jesus. Jesus said if they hate you, before they hated you, they hated me. He said if they hate me, they hate and sinner. This is hard. This book we try to live our lives by. It's very hard. There's a lot of really tough rules in here, uh, to the point where the world will sometimes mock its difficulty and some of its rules because they don't understand it. They're it making sense. To it. But it's a tough book to live by. The purpose of the law, however, is not to show us how good it is. To show us how easily we break His law, how desperately we need Jesus. But well, we often become unpopular. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. That seems like an odd time to rejoice, doesn't it? When people are being mean to you, lying about you, trying to ruin your reputation, even going so far as to persecute you. That seems like an odd time to rejoice. So why should we rejoice in that moment? Because we are in good company. In that moment where you're being attacked for doing the right thing, you're in very good company. You are in the company of the prophets of the Old Testament, which were assaulted and attacked and despised for bringing them the literal word of God. You're in the company of men like Isaiah. You're in the company of men like Jeremiah, like Daniel, like Daniel. Men who brought the word of God to powerful people or a large group of people that didn't like it and were persecuted for it. Men like Moses. When he comes before Pharaoh and says, let thus say the Lord, let my people go. We're in the company of Jesus himself. When he would correct the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and so forth. And they would hate him for it. He reminds us before they hated you.
0: They hated He said.
1: And Jesus responds to their uh, request by saying, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. I've told you this before, but I'll tell you again. Miracles
0: and signs are for the people that have already
1: chosen to believe in Jesus. So if you need the miracle in order to believe in Jesus, you can't have it. Because let me tell you something, God is not interested in proving himself to you. God isn't interested in proving that he exists, because if he could, he would have done that. Scientists would have found proof of God somewhere years ago, if that's what He wanted. But we've never found any proof of God. But we've also never found any proof of anything else, either. That's the whole job a theoretical physicist has. One of the things that they do is they go around and they try to prove Uh, the concept of the Big Bang Theory. And some of them do it through string theory. Some of them do it through dark matter, and they try to find dark matter out there in the universe and so forth. But nobody has proven the non-existence of God.
0: So it's a matter of choice. Do you trust the Bible? Do you trust the Lord? Do you trust Jesus, or do you not? But you can't have
1: the miracle in order to believe And so not only were they not actually interested in believing in Jesus, even if they were they couldn't have a miracle to prove it. The miracles are for those that already believe. The only miracle we're given in order to prove Jesus Christ is God in the flesh is that of an empty tomb. And I want you to think about that. No other religion in all the world can boast an empty tomb. If you worship, not worship, but if you follow the way, as they call it, in Buddhism, they can talk to you about a man
0: that has been proven to be dead. Nobody wonders what happened to him. If uh, you begin to read the teachings of Muhammad, nobody wonders what happened to Muhammad. If you begin to... Believe
1: in any of these religions out there in the world. Nobody wonders what happened to the man that started it. But you look at Jesus, the founder of Christianity.
0: Nobody knows what happened to his body. Even people that
1: don't believe he resurrected can't tell you what happened to his body. And we know this to be true because every three, uh, three or four years, the archaeologists will come out saying, "Oh, we found it! We finally found Jesus." Ah, oh, it's the wrong Jesus. Every few years, they're still out there trying to find Jesus' body, and they'll never be able to. They can take you. If you go to Israel, <coughs> I've uh, had friends in college that did a trip to Israel. One of the tours they take you on is they can take you to the empty tomb that he was laid And they have a little machine as part of the tour that they take in there with them, and it, will, it can detect... If there's ever been a decaying body in that room, and they do a scan in that room, and it always comes up negative. There has never been a decaying body in that tomb. It is an empty tomb. Jesus resurrected wholly, entirely, and bodily. It's an amazing thing. Nobody else in the world can boast that of their leader except for us. We are the only ones with an empty tomb.
0: Then in verse 5, it
1: says, And when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed, and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no that bread. That's what he's talking about. They think, they think he's talking about the fact that they forgot to have bread before they left on the trip. And now Jesus is like, hey, you know, bread is a thing. They say, Oh, we forgot to feed the same. Which Jesus, when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, Oh, ye of little faith, why reason among yourselves because you have brought, brought no bread? Do you not understand how to remember the five loaves of the five thousand? And how many baskets
0: you took up? How many baskets did they take up?
1: Neither the seven loaves of the 4,000, and how many baskets you took up. How is it that you do not understand that I spake it not uh, to you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of Pharisees and Sadducees. So, they misunderstand what he's saying. You see this a lot with Jesus' disciples. They're constantly misunderstanding what he's talking about, or just not understanding altogether. The reason for this is not because they were unintelligent men. The reason for this was because they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. And what you don't understand is the Holy Spirit functions as a kind of translator from the lesson that God is trying to show you to your soul. That is how we as Christians are able to look at a rock somewhere out in the world and think about the rock of our foundation. That is how we're able to see a, a vine climbing up the side of the building and we're able to think of the true vine. That's how we're able to go to the grocery store and see these loaves of bread
0: out there on the shelves and think about the bread of life. Is the translation of the Holy Spirit for us to believe
1: they didn't quite have that yet. But because they didn't understand, and because they're still not thinking spiritually, Jesus says, Oh, ye of little faith, there in verse 8. Because once again, the disciples of Jesus are showing a lack of faith, not because of any sort of inability of performing miracles, but because of their inability to understand what Jesus was saying. Even something as simple as bread
0: could hold a great lesson. But only if we have the faith with him.
1: There are truths and lessons hidden like Easter eggs by the Lord Jesus every day in ordinary things, ordinary places, and even people. All we need in order to unlock
0: these divine lessons, is a strong faith. They couldn't
1: understand what Jesus was trying to teach them, and he told them that they had a little faith. God wants to teach you something, and not just during Sunday school, not just during church service, every single day. And it may not always come from a place you would expect. The lessons of the Lord can come from extremely unexpected places. You're looking for an answer. Look for the Lord to speak to you anywhere, in anything. The Lord can give you an answer you're looking for in the donut store. He can give you an answer uh, while you're at work. Uh, Who was it? uh, Was it Einstein that was working uh, at a restaurant when he discovered the theory of relativity? Something like that. You know, it was, uh, yeah, the plates aligned just right, something like that inspiration can come from all kinds of places, and as a Christian, the Holy Spirit travels with you. He indwells you. He can speak to you anywhere, through anything. God is not
0: so limited as some people would have us believe. But the lesson that
1: they were missing was that they should be wary. They should beware of the leaven. Of Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the leaven of the of the Pharisees and Sadducees wasn't their sin. And that's an important distinction to make because when we think about leaven in the Bible, we think about sin, right? Because of the Lord's Supper, which we'll talk about. But the Bible teaches us we should be wary of the of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but not about their sin. Verse 12 tells us it was their doctrine. It wasn't the things that they knew they should be doing and weren't. It was the things that they believed in their heart of hearts, the things that they thought were right. And Jesus said, be careful of their doctrine. It's not always what people uh, do wrong that we should be careful of. It's also what people believe and what people think that we should be careful of as well. Everything we believe, when it comes to the Lord, when it comes to right and wrong, it should come from this book. This book defines right and wrong. shouldn't I be able to discern that for myself? Well, yes and no. As a Christian, we learn and develop a conscience that aligns with God. But the Bible tells us our conscience can be seared. It can be tricked into thinking something that's right is actually wrong devil's tricky. Don't underestimate him. Look at what happened to Eve in the Garden of Eden. She was tricked into fully believing that eating that piece of fruit was the right thing to do. She fully believed that because the Bible tells us that sin came by Adam, by Eve. She was fully deceived into thinking that she was doing the right thing. Adam knew he was doing something he should have done. That's where sin comes in. But be careful. Because your conscience can be tricked. But if we follow this book, the Bible will never
0: lead you astray.
1: What they believed about God, and especially about Jesus, was capable of corrupting people's hearts. This may seem like something that Jesus wouldn't need to worry about with these 12 Right? Surely these twelve understood who Jesus was and would never have to worry about the the doctrine of the Jews and the Pharisees and the Sadducees corrupting what they believed about Christianity, right? Well, uh, how
0: familiar are we with Galatians 2? You
1: don't know what I'm talking about. In Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul... Writes about a very heated argument he had with Peter. Did you know that Peter and Paul ever even met, let alone had an argument?
0: You know what they were arguing about? That's right, because the, the Jews had come to Peter
1: and said, listen, we want to join you on this Christianity thing. Get pretty popular, it sounds like a good deal. Well, we can make a deal, but. Gotta yeah, I meet mean, us halfway. Kind of we can get down on this salvation thing, but you gotta tell you gotta start telling people that if they're gonna be saved, they have to at least be circumcised. Abraham was circumcised, his children were circumcised. That's gotta be the thing, or you can't be saved. But that's how the Old mm-hmm. Testament and the New Testament come together. You gotta to have both.
0: And Peter agreed believe that Peter agreed to this. Now you can, you can imagine why Paul would have an issue with
1: this. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, right So he meets with Peter, he sees Peter for the first time they had it out. It's a heavy argument and debate which Paul ends up winning. and if you go and read first and second Peter, you can very clearly see, that Peter repented of what he had decided and goes back on the whole circumcision thing. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. If you think about human anatomy, I mean, only 50% of the world could have that
0: done, right? Salvation is for everybody.
1: For the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. So he recants of that, and, but we see right there that This warning that Peter gets in Matthew 16, it was important. Even somebody as strong as Peter, somebody as emotionally connected to Jesus like Peter is, can still be tricked by the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's why it's so important that you know why you believe what you believe. That's why we don't just call this series What We Believe. Right. And it's a very long title, and sometimes on the, the podcast you might see it just says what we believe about, because it won't give me that many characters for a title. But <laughs> it is why we believe what we believe. Because that is what really matters. Because when you go out into the world and you hear people talking about how Spurgeon believed in Calvinism and how much sense it must make if a man as smart as Spurgeon believed in it, you've got to know why we don't believe in it. You know, when people are talking about baptism and how it necessary it must be for salvation, you got to know why that's not true. You know, you got to know why we worship the way we do. you got to know why we read from a King James Bible. I don't want you to just know that that's what we do. I want you to know why we do those things. Why? So you can beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's important, even today. We have our own Pharisees and Sadducees today. Liberal crowd that doesn't appreciate the stand we take on certain things, but also the conservative crowd that uh, would take these things too far. And add to the word of God as well. That's just as wrong. I was talking to a guy one time, and he said to me, you know, if I'm going to be wrong, I'd rather be wrong conservatively than wrong liberally. I said, brother, it doesn't make any
0: difference. You're still wrong. There's no right
1: wrong and wrong wrong. (laughs) Wrong is wrong. Never made any sense to me why you would err on the side of one wrong side more than the other. They're both wrong. Let's just try to stay on the road. Well, I'd rather wind up in the left ditch than wind up in the right ditch. they are both a ditch. Brother, they're both going to wreck your your vehicle up, you know. Let's just stay out of
0: the ditches. Let's just stay on the road. We should be cautious of false doctrines
1: because we can be as uh, corrupted by it as we can of sin. The Bible says in Proverbs 35, every word of God is pure. But I may say something you disagree with. Other preachers may say stuff you agree with. But as long as you hold to this right here, you're in perfect standing with the Lord. You agree with him. And if there's a word in this book you disagree with, I'm not the one you disagree with. It's the Lord. But the Bible says every word of God is pure. And then we come to the phrase that I've been talking about this morning. The context was important. You're going to see why here in just a minute. But in verse 13 of chapter 16, uh, it says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples. It's a very important question.
0: Saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son
1: of Man, am? Whom do men say that I am? There was some discussion about what other people thought that Jesus was. Verse 14, they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the
0: prophets. (laughs) Their
1: guess ranged from John the Baptist to a resurrected Old Testament prophet. And few had an accurate understanding of who Jesus really was. You know, today there's similar confusion about who Jesus is and what he's all about. Something that Jesus is all about, peace and love. But there is much more to Jesus than that. The Bible says in Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said this, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. He said, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth. I came to equip the Christian to do spiritual battle. More than just peace and love and happiness. Others think that Jesus is all about rebuking and scolding sinners. And this is even more untrue. The Bible says in Matthew 9, in verse 10, it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples and when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go and learn what that means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's
0: about... Acceptance.
1: Accepting them all. And then he asks him another question. He says, but whom say ye that I am? What other people think of Jesus, while certainly worth consideration, is not nearly as important as what you think of Jesus. That is what matters. We consider what the world thinks about Jesus for a little while, but the most important question you can answer is, what do you think of Jesus? All the information we gather and all the subjects that we study, there is none so significant as what we know about Jesus. There is no subject you can study more important than the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7 says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubt, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb, that I may win Christ. Paul saying here that of all the possessions you own, the greatest possession in your life is what you know to be true about Jesus. And then we come to that phrase that's often misunderstood. Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In verse 17, Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, people often take this scripture and think that that Jesus is talking about Peter being the rock on which the church is built. Now, if you just take that one verse and ignore everything else surrounding it, I can see why you might think that. But when you take the context of the conversation they're having right now, there's just more to it. They're talking about, who does the world think that I am? Who do you think that I am? They've just been rebuked about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They've just, he just got done rebuking the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's got to be a deeper truth here, a deeper meaning to it. This is one of the most misunderstood verses in all of Scripture.
0: We can take these things that I just mentioned, and we can assume that the Lord is concerned with false ideas about who he is. Right? But Peter just said, thou art the
1: Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter clearly understood who Jesus was. And the last thing Jesus does before making the statement is ask Peter who he thinks Jesus is. Peter answers without hesitation that he is the Son of God. And it's this faith This faith in who Jesus is, that is to become the foundation or rock that the church is to be built upon. Not Peter himself, but rather the faith that Peter has shown. If you're sitting here, you're watching on Facebook, you're sitting here this morning you're thinking, you know, preacher, that's a little weak.
0: You don't believe me. Let's ask Peter himself. 1 Peter, chapter 2. Verse
1: 6 says, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture Behold, I lay in Sion, also called Zion in the Old Testament, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Anybody know what a cornerstone
0: is? It's the first piece of stone that they use to build a foundation.
1: You start at the cornerstone. They will build out from there. A little different the way we do it today, we'll pour a slab, right? Or They've got pier and beam. A little different, but back in these days, you would build a foundation, and you would start with a cornerstone, and you would build out from that corner. And Peter is saying here, the foundation, the rock upon which the church is to be built, was Jesus. The chief of the corner, which the builders, being the Jews, disallowed. They didn't want him. They didn't want Jesus. They rejected him. So we have accepted him. The same has become the head of the corner of
0: the building of the church. We're not talking about Peter. We're talking about faith.
1: It's not just about one man, it's about holding on to something extremely valuable, something incredibly precious. Something that comes in handy when you're having a bad day. You know, you're at your end of your rope, and all you've got left is what you believe. All you've got left are your values. All you've got left is who you are. At the end of your rope, who you are. And that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the most precious thing you own. What you know about Jesus and what holds you together as a Christian. That's the most precious thing we own. That's the foundation. That's the basics of what makes a church. You can have the building, you can have the hundreds of members, you can have more Bibles and more functions and ministries going on that you that you could ever possibly count. But if you don't have faith as the foundation of it all, you don't have anything. You have a house built upon sand. Now, all those ministries and all those buildings and all those structures, they will crumble one day. But if you build Anything for the foundation of faith, whether it be a church, whether it be a uh, a marriage, whether it be a family, whether it be a business, you build it on faith. You build it upon a rock
0: that will never crumble.
1: That is all the time we have for this morning. Not all the time we have for this morning, but my lesson so. <laughs> is all the time you have, though. <laughs> so we'll be back at 11 o'clock for the Sunday morning service.